Welcome to the iConnect with Baxter Canada podcast. This is where we connect with healthcare providers from various clinical settings to learn more about how they are leading through innovation, protocol development, and integration of evidence to provide excellent clinical care to their patients. Join the conversation with your hosts from Medical Affairs at Baxter Canada. Thank you for joining us for today's podcast. My name is Michelle DeGloria, and today I am joined by Angela Craig, who is a clinical nurse specialist in critical care and the sepsis coordinator for an organization in Tennessee. Today's topic for discussion is an introduction of non-invasive hemodynamic monitoring and understanding more about what this technology means and how it can be implemented in your organization. I hope you enjoy the discussion. Welcome, Angela. Thank you for joining me today. I'd like you to introduce yourself and give us an overview of your current role and your experience. All right. Well, thanks for having me today. I'm looking forward to our talk together. And um, my name is Angela Craig, and I'm the clinical nurse specialist for the intensive care unit at Cookville Regional Medical Center in Cookville, Tennessee. And my experience has been, um, I'm an advanced practice nurse, but when I started in nursing, I was a bedside ICU nurse. And then I went on to be occasional charge nurse. And then I went back to school and got my master's degree and became a clinical nurse specialist and went to a hospital just south of Chicago and um, was there for about seven years and was a clinical nurse specialist for two telemetry units. And then I moved to Michigan um, for a short period of time and I did some academia, was a clinical nurse specialist. Sorry, I was still a clinical nurse specialist, but I was faculty for Lansing Community College for a while. And then we moved to um, Tennessee and I've been here for the last 14 years as a clinical nurse specialist for ICU. And I feel like this is really where I was meant to be. I I love this role and it's always changing. And um, so here I am. Amazing. Um, So today we're going to be chatting about non-invasive monitoring. And I'm wondering if we could sort of start the discussion just describing what exactly is non-invasive monitoring. So I absolutely love hemodynamics, and I'm so excited to be able to talk about it. But um, we, at our institution, we utilize non-invasive monitoring for um, some more... um, for our hemodynamic values. So we literally can place some um, electrodes on the patient's chest and actually get um, cardiac output, cardiac index, stroke volume, stroke volume index, um, total peripheral resistance, total peripheral resistance index, and really kind of get a better understanding of what's going on with our patient from a preload, from an afterload, from a contractility standpoint. So to be able to do this where we don't have to have an invasive monitor, um, there is such a value in that. And it's and the ease of use is nice and it's not cumbersome. So um, I think that gives you just a little bit about um, what it is. Yeah, very interesting. Um, Why would you say that this technology is important in clinical settings? I know you touched on the fact that you don't need an invasive line, and I would imagine that that would be um, a huge benefit to many patients. Um, But I'm wondering what your perspective is on why this technology is important. 
So, yes, that it really decreases the burden by not having to have an invasive line. So this is incredibly important because of a lot of our patients, you know, they may have, um, they could be heart failure. They could be renal failure. They can be patients who you're nervous about giving volume to. And so you're able to literally do um, things like give a fluid bolus and monitor change, percentage of change in stroke volume while you give them this bolus. Or you can do a what's called a passive leg raise where all the volume from their lower extremities goes back to their heart and you can literally see within a few minutes if they're having a change in stroke volume because a lot of people patients may or may not have a change in in blood pressure but what is really important are they having a change in their stroke volume so the stroke volume is what's in that uh, in your uh, ventricle prior to contraction um, and what is that and it does that increase um, as you as you give volume whether it's a passive leg raise or a or a um, fluid bolus so the reason it's so important, I don't want to get too much in the weeds there, but the reason I think it's so important is because it can really help us go down different paths. So just like I mentioned with the fluid bullets, is it a volume problem or a preload problem? Or is it a contractility problem? Is my cardiac index low? Is my is my stroke volume low? Is, is this all related to more contractility and maybe I need an inotrope? Or is it because um, it is a afterload problem? So my patient is incredibly incredibly dilated. Um, maybe their TPR and TPRI is very, very low. Or maybe, and, and so those patients might need a vasopressor to kind of tone them up. Or is it somebody who is hypertensive crisis? So you have a very, very high TPR and TPRI and you need to dilate them. So they need a medication that will help them do that. So basically it really gives you the information you need to treat them specifically. Is it preload we need? Is it an afterload issue where we need a vasopressor or we need maybe a nitrate or something? So, or is it um, contractility and we need an inotrope? So really allowing um, clinician assessment to truly individualize the therapy rather than just sort of guessing. Absolutely. And you said it beautifully. Um, individualized care is where it's at. I think, uh, you know, no provider likes cookbook medicine, right? right. <laughs> so sometimes we'll say things like that we've heard that's protocolized, and I get that, that that's what they call it, cookbook. But we really want to make sure that our treatments are tailored for our patients. So this is an excellent way you can do that, um, trying to figure out exactly. Like we don't want to overload. We don't want to underload. We want it just right. Um, so, yes, this is a beautiful um, method of doing that. And it sounds as well that it would also help to empower the nurse to know that if we are looking at a protocol, I have all of the information and data that I need to choose the, the correct pathway. Let's say if there's, you know, if you see this, choose A. If you see this, choose B. Um, I would think that this would be very helpful and empowering. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, what we have here at our institution, we have um, protocolized um, hemodynamic monitoring. We've, we've um, in our nurse-driven protocol, we can actually apply this technology. Now, what it hasn't allowed us to do yet, now some institutions do have it where it's very prescriptive. So you can give fluids or you can um, give a, a vasopressor. So for us, it's just more allowed us to get the information and the and the data and then bring that to the provider. And then we discuss a plan like what we need. Um, 
you know, just recently I had a provider, it was this week, who said, hey, that patient is so sick. Go ahead, hook up your stuff and <laughs> and do your little fluid thing. And I said, okay, well, we got it. So we went in there and did passive leg raise. And we actually did not have a volume response, but yet this patient was really, really dilated out. And we could tell that by these numbers. Um and just by by the patient in general, and also looking at their um, different components of their blood pressure, this patient's diastolic was incredibly low. Um, anyway, all that to say, we added another presser. And so it can really be beneficial. And yes, individualizing care is so important and um, can be so helpful. So with that example, it does sound like that particular physician is on board and is embracing the technology. And I'm sure it's not always that way with everyone, whether they're a nurse or a physician. And I'm just wondering if there's anything that you've done within your organization to make the adoption of technology a little bit easier or how you've managed um, any resistance that you've come up against. Well, you know, trying to... um get someone to believe in technology can be a little bit challenging. And I will say that the longer um, we do this, I'm hearing more of the providers will say, hey, see if they're volume responsive and, and then um, let me know. And like, it makes me so happy because I'm like, oh my gosh, all this work is not in vain, right? Um, right? We, we do know that this, um, that this is helpful. Um, so I think what, what I've tried to do is even as a nurse, I try to provide classes for the providers. Mm. Now it's been a minute or so since I've done that because a lot of my providers are not new, but, um, and whenever we have changes to our technology, um, inviting them to the end services, giving them some kind of education, um, on this so that they don't feel just lost with, with this technology. Right. And, you know, I'm not, I don't know how much they teach this in, um, medical school. Um, so some of this is, might be newer or just not, they haven't looked at it in the recent, um, past. So maybe they just need a little refreshment. So I think really working with them and have it be more of a collegial approach, mm -hmm. um, and now one time, I, something I did learn, I I was at the bedside and I was going through it with the provider and I found out later that that, that wasn't very comfortable to that provider. And whereas I didn't even pick up on that. And honestly, I mean, I'm like, I'll learn anywhere. But it just made me aware that, you know, hey, maybe I need to be more careful. Um, you know, we do this as nurses all the right, time. All but, the you time. know, a, pro a provider might, you know, that one just didn't want to feel um, – didn't, I think didn't want to have anybody have the perception that they didn't know maybe what right. this was. So I would never want to do that intentionally, but just know that, that sometimes it's sensitive. So I think by having almost like separate classes for them can be helpful where they can have a safe place to ask questions as well. Definitely, definitely. Um, when you were bringing technology into your organization, um, what was sort of the general feedback from administrators? Was this a hard sell or did they see the value in, in being able to make these individualized patient decisions? Yeah, our administrators here at my institution have just been fabulous. I mean, I have... I, I will tell you, this has been a great institution to work for um, in regards to when there's something that we really feel like might help our patients, they they listen. Um, it is harder and harder to get more capital these days, I will say. So that, that can be a little bit challenging. 
um, but trying to, I'm finding that companies are being very great to work with you right now, especially in lieu of everything. And they, they know capital dollars are not easy. So whatever, you know, working with a company, um, but overall, my administrators have been great. And I think once they understand the, the, the technology as well, that makes a huge difference. And I will tell you, like I had a director that I worked with, and she was very um, familiar with the technology, and she believed in it. So that that really worked to help the unit um, embrace it. Mm-hmm. And also someone who, you know, really wants to see that we're utilizing that on the appropriate patients. That makes sense. Can you tell us about any of the uh, clinical outcomes that you've observed or, you know, I know you mentioned that one patient where you kind of went in and, and, and they maybe had one sort of perspective on what the treatment plan would be, but then using the data, change the treatment plan. Do you see that often or is this sort of a one-of or or what would you say? Yeah, no, I would say, you know, a lot of this is about if you take the time to look at it, right? So like I tell my staff, just having an, uh, a monitor in a room and having the numbers there but not thinking through those is going to do no good, right? Mm-hmm. You really need to think through what this is telling you. Um, but there have been many times I had one day where some nurses came running into my office. They said, Angela, the doctor is telling us to um, – they are telling us to give a, a – hang a diuretic drip and we actually think the patient needs um needs a fluid based on you know the passive leg raise or whatever they did and it about thrilled my heart so I said well let's go let's go figure it out so we talked to the doctor and the doctor said okay go ahead and give a 500 bolus or whatever um they said so I mean moments like that where the nurses can really um integrate the knowledge part into practice and and say okay here's what we need to do or here's what I think we need to do I'm also encouraging like teaching moments at the bedside Mm -hmm. to where you can really look at this patient and say what you know what's what's going on um what do you think we need to do it can just be so helpful what um type of patients or what patient population have you used this technology on or is it only is it limited to a, a certain population or is it can it be used for anyone yeah i think anybody that you're unsure of how they're going to respond to fluid if you're nervous about giving fluid if you're um i mean i really hate to limit it to diagnoses because mm-hmm. i feel like then you're limiting the technology um so anybody where you want to know preload afterload or contractility on and so that can be such a broad yes. number of patients you know a lot of times we used to talk about this tech kind of technology with our septic patients and while yes that is a great patient population by all means though not all inclusive you know we have a lot of other diagnoses that um very well could benefit from this so i just say don't limit yourself um and and just see see where it where it can work the best um we would say any anybody where we're concerned about fluid, if we're concerned about um, needing a presser or needing a inotrope, um, any of those patient populations um, make sense to me. Do you see um, this technology being used outside of the ICU or critical care environment? You know, at my institution, not a lot yet. I will tell you this. We have um, some technology down in our emergency department. Mm-hmm. And um, well, I try to orient our new providers, and I was orienting a new um, ER provider. 
and I was mentioning that, you know, hey, if you ever want to know uh, preload, afterload, or contractility on one of your patients, you know, we have the ability to do this non-invasively. And she goes, well, I've got somebody right now. I'm like, okay, well, you want me to go hook it up? And she's like, well, yeah. So I went right and did it. I thought, oh, no, those and when I went to get it, you know, it had dust on it. Um, and now I'm not saying that proudly. I'm saying no. that, that, you know, they just didn't, use, they don't use it as much as what we use it up in the ICU. So that being said, that doesn't mean that's not where it should be used. I feel strongly that we should probably be working toward that. And we are doing small steps to encourage that. Um, the other place I could see a real benefit is utilizing it is with our rapid response team. So as we go up to these floors and as beds are more and more scarce um, can we help can that help us triage to see hey how well is this patient doing how are they responding to maybe the fluid bullets we're giving and things like that right right absolutely um, I think that's one of the challenges um, that you've indicated anytime new technology is brought in if you don't have someone who is sort of I don't want to I, I hate the word champion because I think it's often overused, but if you don't have someone who's sort of championing the use of the device, um, I could see where in a busy department like the emergency room, although valuable, it may not um, obviously be top of mind for those clinicians. So I, I totally understand and I completely get it. Um, what factors do you feel have made the introduction of this technology successful in your unit? Um, I think um, a good rollout, but also, um, for instance, in the we've got specific guidelines for sepsis here um, in the United States, and um, in in the guidelines it says it talks about dynamic assessments, mm -hmm. and when you have strong recommendations or best practice statements and guidelines. I, I like to do those best practice things, right? right? So that really encourages me. And when I see that, that gives me more, um, more positive um, data to bring to administrators and people who can make the decision to purchase these capital products, right? Um, or if they are capital products or to bring in, um, you know, bring in the mm -hmm. technology. Um, as far as other things that have helped make um, introduction successful as a smooth rollout. So I know that before we rolled out this and um, we did a pilot and that really was helpful for us. So we brought that this in and over a two week time period, we utilized it and we identified in advance what patient population we wanted to see it proved effective on. So we chose those patients like what we were just talking about. We chose septic patient. We said we wanted somebody maybe with cardiogenic shock or somebody with hypovolemic shock or whatever. Um, and so we had very specific patient populations we wanted to see. So then at the end of that two weeks, we came back together and we had a presentation of those different patient populations and how, um, what data we gathered and how that was helpful in our care for those patients. I think that is very important. So when they saw that they saw how that worked and then we worked out a budget plan together mm -hmm. on how we would be able to afford it, um, then we move went forward. So I do think having a pilot can really help as well. And again, I, I think the other thing I'm taking from that is also working with your the vendor or the company, um, the manufacturer of that product to see 
in days like like today, the current environment we're we're living in, where capital dollars are lean, um, to work out different plans on how you can potentially bring technology in, and um, it also sounds like having very clear parameters as to what you're hoping to get from the evaluation helps as well because then everyone knows what you're looking for and everyone sort of knows what um, the metrics or the measurements are that um, are required to, to deem this as being successful. Yes, yes. So I'm going to end with my favorite question, which is what are the top three recommendations you would have for healthcare organizations who are maybe considering implementing non-invasive te- uh, technology or monitoring into their um, ICU setting or ER setting or whatever setting that might be? Mm-hmm. I think that they need to think strongly. If they do not have this kind of technology in their critical care units, um, that um, read the literature and um and look at what it says about volume optimization. Not only that, actually, I think of it more as perfusion optimization, not just volume optimization or fluid optimization, uh, perfusion optimization. So um, look around. If you can't easily identify your patient's hemodynamic values, then I highly recommend um, that you um, initiate some kind of a program. I also think a program for non-invasive hemodynamic monitoring. I also think secondly, you've got to make sure that there is mandatory education. This should not be optional. Um, some institutions want to think that just a little, um, um, computerized module is good enough. I highly recommend a very good plan for education. So maybe doing the computerized module and then do some face-to-face mandatory education so that you know everybody understands it. And then um, and then the last recommendation would be follow-up, follow-up, follow-up. So going around and rounding, being willing, having somebody who takes the lead on the project, mm-hmm. who goes around and rounds and follows up on questions and gets with whether it's the um, vendor or whoever to help you with the answers. I mean, I keep a lot of these vendors' phone numbers in my um, phone, and so I'll be in a room and on the phone with the vendor if I can't figure something out. And knowing so we can get answers to the staff quickly so that there's not a lot of confusion and they don't think that it's just, you know, a right. machine in the room that nobody understands, right? So that's what I would say. No, I, I, li- I like that last um, piece of advice. I think often vendors are underutilized. Um, they truly are the experts in this, in, in whatever they're selling to you. So I agree wholeheartedly. Um, use the resources that you have um, and take advantage of them for sure. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you, Angela, for joining me today. It's been a wonderful discussion. I hope that we've sort of uh, brought some enlightenment to the listeners about what exactly non-invasive hemodynamic monitoring is and how it may be beneficial in their uh, clinical setting. Absolutely. I look forward to hearing um, hearing stories about um, institutions that have implemented something like this. Yes. Thank you, Angela. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. But thanks for listening to today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss our next episode. Please reach out to us by email if you have any questions, comments, or feedback. We look forward to having you back with us next time. Thank you for joining us for the episode of iConnect with Baxter. 
All of the opinions and experiences expressed in this episode are those of the guest speaker and do not necessarily reflect those of Baxter Canada. If there are other areas of interest you would like to see included on future podcasts, please email those to iConnect at Baxter.com.